I've got the cat locked out. I learned the hard way the other night. The cat came running in right across. I'm staying in like a $6 million mansion on a golf course. And the guy said, you can stay there as long as you want, as long as you look after the cat. Okay, wait, but how does one actually look after a cat? Because I thought they just did their own thing no matter what. Well, this cat thinks it's a dog, which is problematic. The bottom line is the cat cannot come on and he's it's already he's been shit on one podcast too many Farzi, i gotta ask you buddy what were you up to today <laughs> it's uh, the month of may that's how we start every podcast asking mike farwell what did you do today well I'll tell you what I uh, I started with a pretty easy gig after my talk show. I, <laughs> I was went out to say that's the easy gig. You <laughs> talk, talk for a living. <laughs> that's a good point. So my my second easy gig of the day was doing some uh, some lunch deliveries. But I got to give credit to this group that pulled this together real quick. Uh, yes, they're based in the region of Waterloo. So yes, my bias is showing through. But it's this couple that had a favorite restaurant, and when the pandemic first started. They went to that restaurant on a Tuesday to support the business owner and they could tell that he was down a little bit. So they promised they'd go back again the next week to keep supporting this local restaurant. And then they got the idea, well, because nobody can go anywhere, why don't we ask our neighbors if they want food from that restaurant? We'll just bring it back to the neighborhood. And it's grown into this massive thing that every Tuesday, this group of volunteers goes out and delivers and, and they help out a local independent restaurant. They've kicked $175,000 back into the restaurant industry in the community over the past 15 months. And it's, it's really cool just the way it started and what it's grown to. So anyway, I did some deliveries with them. And don't, and the, rest, do, sorry, Farzi, don't the restaurants put on a special that day that people can order? That's right. Yeah. yeah so they go like, out so they, it's a discount. It's not like you're spending $40 on a meal, right? It's like, Hey, come get this burger and fries for $8. Right. And you think about that for the restaurant though, if they're moving two, yeah. three, sometimes 400 of these things a day, right? That's a nice day for the restaurant. So for yeah, sure. it's really cool the way it all started. So they had me out to help out with some deliveries and it was off to do some gardening and I had to move a few boxes. It's all about the manual labor during Farwell for Hire Pope, I'll tell you. And I'm I'm uh, less and less manual as, yeah. as I age. I need to call you, young fella. Uh, buddy, the way my body's been feeling lately, no thank you. I think I, I don't know if I'd be much help. I got to ask, how come my Farwell for Hire shirt, you can't read, it's backwards, but yours is right on the Hang video on. here. Now, that's interesting because on the video for me, yours looks proper huh. and mine looks backwards okay well then i won't okay. worry about it that's fine um <laughs> uh if people don't know what we're talking about farwell hires or rents himself out for the month of may to raise money to find a control or cure for cystic fibrosis real quick farzi hit them where they can help oh where, farwell where, yeah yeah just like the shirt says if you're watching on youtube read pope's shirt unless mine looks right to you maybe they both look right on the video i don't know anyway farwell the number four hire Dot com. You can donate there. You can buy stuff there. You can play a 50-50 uh, there, which is Ontario-wide, friends. So jackpot, as we record, is over $33,000. Not a bad chunk of change. Better than at a, I don't know, Mississauga Ice Dogs game. So anyway, farwell, the number four, hire.com. Sorry, Missy, I had to put it out there. Hey, the uh, the $1,000 Thursdays are more than a Mississauga. Hey, <laughs> <laughs> It gotta be that way, huh? It's, it's funny because it's true. Yeah. Um, okay, so that's going on. What are you gonna do? Uh, what, what are we? May, June, July, August, September, October. Five months from now, in October, you. maybe the seventh. 
I will tell you exactly what I'm going to do on October the 7th. But before I tell you that, and, and I'm going to tell you how wrong you are, okay. uh, I did want to just make a, a quick mention, and thanks to our friend Brent Bell, who likes to listen from the Eastern Conference side of the Ontario Hockey League, says he loves the podcast. So, Beller, can I, can I call you Beller? Because that's what we call everybody named Bell that we know, right? Shout out to Steve from Windsor. Anyway, uh, Beller, thanks for letting us know. Thanks for listening to the podcast and uh, passed along the information. And this is a, this is a gut-wrencher, Popey. Mm. St- Steve Carter played for the Bulls from 92 to 95. Kingston native, went on to become a police officer in Kingston and died suddenly this past week of a heart attack at the age of just 40 Six way too soon. So condolences to the the Carter family and and the Ontario Hockey League family. Of course, mourns that loss of the former Belleville Bull who patrolled the blue line back in the day. That's crazy. Way too young. Way too young indeed. So you mentioned October the seventh, and what am I going to be doing? And I'll tell you what I'm going to be doing. I'm going to be I'm going to go to work. My uh, my easy talk show. I'm going to do that for a few hours. I'm going to come home. I'm going to. Um, probably just sit around and tap my feet with anticipation at about 4:30 that afternoon of October the 7th, 2021. I'm going to make my way over to the Kitchener Memorial auditorium where they're going to let me through the doors as a member of the media. And I will ascend the stairs to the broadcast booth. I will not take the elevator. I will climb the stairs and I will broadcast a Kitchener Rangers game on October the 7th, because that my friend is when the season is going to start. Unless the Rangers start on the road, then you're not doing any of that. That's not going to happen. <laughs> the only time we did that was when they were renovating the damn arena. By yeah. the way, happy 70th birthday this week to the Kitchener Memorial Auditorium. Mm. It turns 70 on the 24th of May. The grand old dame on East Ave. Looks good for her age. Right? I drive by it as much as I can, to be honest with you. Whenever I'm close, I take the long way just because I want to drive by the East Ave entrance. I think it's just still gorgeous. It really is. We talk about uh, the Memorial Auditorium and this podcast and the one we just recorded too, because it's the OHL stories. And there's a lot of stories about what goes on in this Kitchener Memorial Auditorium. But I'm, I, you seem to be a little too excited that the season or that the schedule has the schedule hasn't even been announced. They've just announced when the season's going to start. Yeah, June 2nd to 12th of 2022 is going to be the Memorial Cup. It's going to be great. Here, here's the thing, Chris. Here is the thing. We all right now need one thing. I was going to say more than anything else. We need our vaccines more than anything else. But the second thing we really need is some. I, I was trying not to curse. We need some hope, Popper. We need some hope. And when the Ontario Hockey League, after just weeks, truly, after canceling its season, going through the draft lottery and then announcing a start date for the next season says to me they're planning they're getting ready for another season and this is this is the date they are aiming for i'm not sure we're going to be able to have every seat filled with fans even if the fans want to be in there let's see what public health has to say about that but there we're going to start we will start on october the 7th come hecker high water and we need that hope and i'm hopeful sure you don't think we're starting what do you I, mean? I don't sure. know. I, I don't know. I'm not putting anything past this government anymore, Mike. I'm done. I don't. Who knows? Who knows? Everything's been canceled for two years. I'm a pessimist. Who knows? 
I, whatever, you know, like maybe I just live at, or I work from home. I live at home. Everyone just stays in their house and we'll never see friends and family ever again. I don't know. You know, I'm trying not to be that guy, but I just, you had a full year to get ready for a season one way or another. Every other league did it. You didn't five months from now, at least, Hey, at least they have a plan. At least they have a plan. This is what I said a couple weeks ago. I said, I just want them to have a plan and they have a plan. or October 7th. So we'll give them that. I am calling shenanigans on what you just said. What other leagues had a season? Tell me about these great seasons that everybody had except the Ontario Hockey League. Pros don't count. What what, 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 what kind of season? NCAA, everyone. The the, the Q to a better degree. But really, the stop, start, stop, start, start, stop. It's a a season. The dub called it off. Cancel playoffs. Perfect. It's still a season. How is it? What did they get? 20 games? 25? It is what still a season, though. It's, it's nothing. It's, the I, mean, I shouldn't nothing. say it's nothing. But yes. They I have know. players who have taken it on their own ability and said, you guys can't figure it out. We'll start a tournament in Erie. Like, that's the look you have right now. Yeah. And you know what? Good on those players. We'll have to reach out to Andrew Parrott. Hey, Andrew, are you listening? We need to talk. Let's get in touch, okay? Sure. But you're you're right. That's not a that's not a great look. But and and you mentioned the government. I hold the government entirely responsible in this whole mess that it's been. But by October the seventh, by which time most of us should be fully vaccinated here in Ontario, here in Canada, quite frankly, uh, we'll be we're going to be in a much much better place i i'm honestly i'm i'm beyond optimistic i'm confident that the season's gonna get going listen watching some of the stanley cup playoffs like down in carolina having a full rink i know like i don't know if i still don't know if it's smart and if i if i like it but on the other hand at this point i don't care because i love it yeah. because people are together there's an atmosphere i think it's great i remember watching the the first jays game in texas right where they yeah and and Texas, as far as I know, is still there as mm-hmm. a state. So let's let's go. And obviously, people are ready. Like these are, I believe, sporting events, concerts, restaurants are going to be some of the first places to bounce back because we just want to get out there and do stuff again. I'm just going to say this, and then we can move on. I just okay. hope that if they open up somehow, some way, they make it that you have to be vaccinated to go into the building or the place of business because there's still far too many people that aren't getting vaccinated and it's just setting us all back they might they might do that i don't think a government will impose anything like that because it gets pretty touchy but if an independent entity like a business or an arena wants to do that okay i'm all for it um october 7th when they announced that that's when the season was going to start and they announced oh like the key dates what that did for me more than anything was tell me i have five months to lose weight fit into my suits (laughs) That's it. Oh. That, that, that's basically what it did. You Pro have tip. five months to not eat out four times a week and maybe lay off the Vizzy hard seltzers. Pro tip from the older guy on this podcast. Just buy new suits. That's what you do. <laughs> I've been buying new suits for years, buddy. <laughs> I should. What I should have done is when I, before two seasons ago, when I did drop about 20, 25 pounds, I should have kept the suits I threw out. <laughs> you know what's so funny is I remember that, and everybody was walking into the media room on the first game of the season. They're like, Popper, what happened to you? Yeah. You lost so much weight. You look great. It was like the first day of school after the summer holidays, and everybody's coming back looking at the brand new Pope. 
Yeah, now I can't find a belt that fits. <laughs> it's like, why do you only wear hoodies and shorts? Leave me alone. If you are going to give the shout out and well done to the Vizzy Hard Thank Seltzer, you. let me please give a shout out to our friends at Block 3 Brewing in St. Jacobs, because in, in a matter of days from the time of this podcast's release, you are going to be able to find Face for Radio IPA. Mine would be the face for radio, but you buy that beer and you're supporting the Farwell for Hire campaign in support of cystic fibrosis. So go to block three and get yourself some face for radio. Mad at Graham, but I'll buy a couple, couple cans. What are you mad at Graham for? How could you possibly be? We had a gentleman's agreement. I held up my end. He didn't uh, hold up his. So I'm I don't understand. Yeah, I don't well, understand. That's off air. I still okay. like him. I'm just playing it up that he Graham's, just, Graham's an honorable guy. I know. So tell him Pope P out. Okay, I'll let them know when I go uh, pick up my face for radio IPA. Yeah. yeah. Well, I know it is the month of May and you're busy. So do you want to get to our guests? Yeah, let's do that. After the quick <laughs> reminder, hey, leave, a, leave us a rating. Uh, shoot us an email if you want to. Uh, our guest last week, Scott McCrory, was the first by request guest. So farwellandpope at gmail.com. Popers on Twitter at underscore Chris Pope. I'm on Twitter at underscore farwell no at farwell underscore ohl and uh popey you're always so good at these introductions to our guests so i'm gonna shut up i just want to say wait thanks, for october 7th thanks for lowell for suggesting scoop because it was a great interview and had so some much great fun. stories so much uh, speaking of great stories and the oshawa generals this guy was once a member of the oshawa generals and the saint michael's majors but when you say the name mike Fuda, you automatically think the Owen Sound attack. He basically built up that organization when he took over and left it getting ready for an OHL championship when he took off to La La Land and spent seven seasons with the Los Angeles Kings orchestrating and building both Stanley Cups that they won. And quite frankly, it's been a few months since they let him go, and I can't believe he doesn't have a job in the National Hockey League or anywhere else for that matter. Besides, Roger Sportsnet, where it's on. Mike Fuda on OHL Stories. Lots to talk about, obviously, but I think where I wanted to start was with this, because Owen Sound, when it comes to the Ontario Hockey League, Mike, is, is obviously where uh, you really came into your own and, and, and made a mark on that franchise. But that franchise was and remains the smallest market in the Ontario Hockey League. Was there a David versus Goliath feeling in the community within the franchise? Oh yeah. And I, I wanted it to be that way. Like I used to, uh, I used to call it at the American league East, you know, and the Yankees and the Red Sox are always going to be at the top and we got to find a way to compete with the Yankees and the Red Sox. And that was insert name. It was Kitchener, London, Guelph. I wanted us to be the, to slay the dragon, so to speak. And it was, uh, what about it? We got it to a point. I mean, it was incredible. Like the battles and stuff like that. But anyways, so are we going to start, we started, yeah, we can. Do you want to? We can. I, I thought we were Kate. Yeah, we, we, Mike just kind of started there on us because we were I shooting the shit. And then all of a sudden, we, <laughs> before we got on, my apologies. Yeah. No, that's okay. We were just shooting the shit. Can and then, again? yeah, well, okay, we'll start up here when you're done drinking the water. Three, two, <laughs> sorry. No, that's okay. Uh, obviously, Mike, there's a lot of ground to cover with you when it comes to the Ontario Hockey League, but. I thought the the place really to to begin the dive here is in Owen Sound, where you really made the name for yourself and in the league certainly put a stamp on a franchise. But the the attack at the time were and they still remain the smallest market 
in the Ontario Hockey League. And I wonder about that David versus Goliath feeling. Was it really present in the franchise? Uh, if it wasn't, I wanted to incorporate it because I felt that was something that uh, the biggest thing for me, like being obviously I started in Mississauga on an expansion team and then to go to the Oshawa Generals, which had all this story tradition and still think I was kind of into coaching and starting to fall in love with the personnel side of it. And of course, Sherry Basson at the time thought he was running the Oshawa Generals and the Erie Otters because he was in Oshawa more than he was in. <laughs> so he would come in and tell us how to run our franchise at the same time. And then he, when Owen Sound reached out, he was like, I know you think you're the next Scotty Bowman, but you know, you got a chance to run your own program up there. And it was so frustrating because really there was the list of teams, like everybody that would report to the OHL. And then there was a separate list of people who would report to Owen Sound. And that was the biggest roadblock that I had to knock down as far as making it. I mean, the ownership group was absolutely fabulous. When I met with them, they were like six of the most wonderful people you could ever imagine. And they're kind of handing the keys over to the car. And I wanted I wanted it to be David versus Goliath. And that was why I wanted our draft list to look like if we were going to make mistakes, it was, it was because our list was wrong, not because people didn't want to play on Owen Sound. So um, that first draft, I mean, we had Bobby Ryan at number one on our list. And uh, I basically built the whole hiring process around um, if I could get Bobby Ryan to report to Owen Sound, every, like, people are going to report to Owen Sound. Like it opened up the market for American players and stuff like that. So I basically hired my coach based on a Bobby Ryan connection with Mike Stuthers and stuff like that. And, and we did it and we recruited him. And I think that just opened up the door, but it was still that, that little market, like there'd be players like, uh, you know, we get this, you know, guys would be lined up at face off saying, you know, we get this, you know, we get that. Like talking to Bobby Ryan on the ice and he'd come back to my office and go, do you know what they get? <laughs> and stuff like that. And it was just like, um, and it, it truly was. It was such a battle because we, we we had to climb up to – and you had powerhouses, and they were well run. It wasn't just they were teams that were – I'm never big on this, you know, teams broke the rules thing. I just think there's some people that had exceptional franchises, and they were exceptional hockey people too. Like when you, you're going head-to-head with Pete DeBoer and Steve Spott – and they're with the Kitchener Rangers. And then you're going up and you got the London Knights with the Hunter brothers. And, and Guelph was always, it was like, it was tough. And then you had Bass running the Erie Otters, Sherry Bassett and stuff. So it was a battle. And we put ourselves squarely in the battle. Uh, my ownership group didn't, uh, we didn't cheap out in anything. It was a, it was a, was a small, you've seen the Lumley Bayshore. It's, it's not like uh, Kitchener, right? But it, it is a place that teams don't like to come to play. Our dressing room, they turned it into was like a small National Hockey League dressing room, their weight facility. They did a wonderful job. So they made my job easy as far as recruiting. But, yeah, we were always we were always throwing rocks at the Goliaths. And uh, every now and then they hit. And sometimes Goliath gave us a <laughs> – swung right back. Got us one of the chops too. But it was, it was an incredible experience for me. And, I mean, that community in itself – I'm still very close with the ownership group. And some of the names, I think the, one of the happiest I've ever was, was, I mean, I didn't get the job done of winning that championship. They said, well, you've got good teams, but nobody's ever going to win there. And and when uh, when Dale DeGray took the ball across the line with that team and they won, I was just one of the happiest people in the world that that community finally had got to taste the the victory of that, that championship that Owen Sound was never supposed to win. You mentioned Bobby Ryan. Um, he made it very well known that he was going to play in the States. You get him at number seven. What went into that recruitment? Well, there's a little bit of it I'm not going to get because his father was in prison in the, mm-hmm. at the time, and the, it's been spoken about. And uh, 
Bobby Clark was kind of like his surrogate father at the time. And Pat Morris, when I was going through my coaching, uh, my coaching, uh, list for my head coach he brought up a name of Mike Stuthers who had just been released from the Philadelphia Flyers as an assistant coach and even though when a flyer gets released they're still very tight-knit and uh, my thinking was if uh, Mike Stuthers after I interviewed him I loved him was that if I can use the connection with Philly that knowing that Bobby Clark trusted Stutz you know they trusted me that um, getting Bobby under like he he didn't really wasn't the prototypical he was like, going to Michigan he was in the program and stuff, but he was kind of player that wanted to fast track the national hockey league. And, and it was a good fit. I remember having to go to Dave branch and say, because of his personal situation that like everybody talked about this, we had this cottage that we built for Bobby Ryan. It wasn't the case at all. We actually had to get permission for his mom to come up because his father still couldn't cross the border. So his mom would have to come up and live in the community in order for Bobby to report. So it was all about board, but I remember him coming up in the summer and it was one of those beautiful days. It was We took him salmon fishing, and he was the worst golfer. But he's a scratch golfer. I can't believe he did. He's the worst golfer I've ever seen in my life. <laughs> he, he left patches of grass at Stone Tree torn up. And I'm like, how can a guy with hands like you do this to a golf course? And he, now he's a scratch golfer. But anyways, he we found out we were getting him. And it was like he almost just blew it off. Oh, yeah, yeah. It was my dad. You know, my dad spoke with Clarkie, and, yeah, we're going to come up. And I was just like – it was like nothing to him. We were take we took him to like a senior B uh, lacrosse game and it was sold out. So we got to see what the rink looked like packed. Uh, fortunately, he didn't get to see what it looked like with six feet of snow, but <laughs> he came up and uh, he, he was just engaged by the whole process. And he lived with the great family, a stay house family along with Wes Cunningham, his mom, his mom lived with him and, and, and he loved every minute of it. I'm sure there were times like he had the, the local girlfriend at the time and stuff like that. And he was a huge part of the community but it was a battle. Like once he went second overall, I mean, Bobby's just such a happy go lucky guy. And I mean, like Brian Burke was coming up saying, listen, if you don't get your act together, we're going to both be running a McDonald's franchise together and stuff like that. So now Stutz had to become a bit of a hard ass. And Bobby kind of came in one day, like he had extra bike rides and Stutz was like, Bobby came in. Did you, when you brought me here, did, you didn't tell me I was going to the tour de France. <laughs> he goes, I thought it was going to <laughs> So we had some fun with him, but Bobby finally found out what hard work was. And then when he got to the National Hockey League and his body was in a lot better condition, some of those natural, incredible hands that he had started to take off. And we remained very close. And uh, and it's just been so nice to see. Obviously, he went through some adversity there, but he's a, he's a special young man. And he's always got a – like we had something for – Helen Lewis was going through some health, health problems up in Owen Sound. And I called all the guys that were making the big money – in the National Hockey League that had played there. And within a second, we had like raised like ten, fifteen thousand $15,000 for Helen. So that community, the, the guys that came through there, like the big namers like Giordano and and Simmer and uh, and Bobby Ryan, they've really not forgotten about it. And they, they've looked after the people there. It was very fond memories. How much did Bobby Ryan's recruitment pave the way for those other names that followed? It was, it was huge, Mike, because now – um, first of all, guys wanted to play with him. Uh, like, uh, it was a good report. I mean, I got a call. We had drafted a Bob, like some of the Americans on our list now, like Bobby Sanganetti, for example, like they were calling us like, wow, what did you do to get, you know, to get Bobby up there and stuff like that. And, and it wasn't a matter of anything because it, it was basically just now identifying the American players that were elite players that didn't necessarily, the program just wasn't for them. Right. And I became a very like, 
I think between myself and Mark Hunter, there were wanted posters up in Ann Arbor for us <laughs> because every time we went down to the program there, we walked away with a couple of Americans in Michigan there. I don't think Red Berenson has my picture in his wallet either. We, <laughs> uh, um, like Trevor Lewis, for example, as well. There was another perfect example. Like Trevor was the he was the cap, uh, most valuable player in the USHL. And the same thing, as soon as uh, the Kings drafted him, and that ended up being my, my segue into the National Hockey League, but he was like, yeah, I, wanna, I don't want to go to Michigan. I, I want to go play with Bobby Ryan. Like, and it ended up great. So we ended up with Trevor Lewis for a year, and even some of the part of the trade deadlines, just knowing that you've got that player. And throughout the thing, it was funny. There was never any uh, talk of, you know, even in the tough time, like when the time he was there, like the hardest part for him was I think that year he went – he was one of those guys that caught in between that he'd done everything he could do. But as a 19 year old, he wasn't ready for pro and had to come back. That was the hard motivating year for him because he truly was ready to play in the American hockey league, but the rules were the rules and he had to be returned to junior and he was great, but um, he was so much better than anybody else at that time. It was hard to keep him motivated on a daily basis. And that's where, uh, that's where my bond with Brian Burke came into fruition with some extra motivating tactics that we had to use along the way. But so many incredible stories. And I mean, I still am in touch with his dad, his dad, he ended up being just like his mom passed away last year, bless her soul. But his dad is just was unbelievable. And there was a great story because uh, his mom and dad couldn't even sit beside each other at the time at the, at the NHL draft because of like, it was a restraining order or something like that. And then Bob was adamant. Bob Sr. was adamant he could get up to see a game. So we, we, he'd gone his own. He had his ankle bracelet on and all got across the border, got his way up to one sound. And we had him decked out in a, we had him decked out in an on sound attack track suit. Like he was a trainer sitting at the end. He sat, we, you know, we had him at the end glass sitting with me watching his son play and right in front of us where we come on the ice there and on sound. Somebody in London, it was like, I'm pretty sure we were playing London. Somebody hit Bobby Sanganetti from behind or Secura from behind, and they were right down in front of us, and a huge scrum started. And the trainers come on the ice, and he ran, his dad ran on the ice with the trainers. <laughs> so I'm looking around, and this is a televised game. And his dad's just, he's got one knee down, like he's checking on the guy, like for pulse, and then he's got, he starts to giving it to the ref. And I'm like, oh my God. <laughs> and Bobby's on the bench, just shaking his head, and I'm like, how are we going to destroy this tape? Like his dad is on a nationally televised game. His dad's on the ice, giving it to the ref. So anyways, when he got back, he had to do a little extra time <laughs> for, uh, for breaking the uh, cross the border rule. But I think they were understanding because it was such a funny story, but it just kind of told you how much the, the, the community meant to the family as well. That's crazy. Um, Bobby got my buddy 31 points, Scott Tregun. I got to name drop him while I can he put him on, <laughs> put him on that line. And all of a sudden he had 31 tucks. Um, you mentioned everything that was going on and we're concentrating a lot on Bobby, but I just want to know how, with everything that was going on, how did you orchestrate it? And how did you, along with David branch, keep that whole story kind of hush hush? Cause it didn't come out until I guess the last couple of years. Well, I mean, we knew about it. The first time I found out about it, it was like, and I mean, I'm sharing a lot, but I mean, I literally Googled because his agent was Mark Guy and Newport Sports, who I had a great relationship with, but they kind of said, you know, Google the name Bob Stevenson and I did. And it was like, literally it said America's most wanted. Like it was, it was on that list of, and I was like, holy. And it was, I think it was for like attempted murder or something, which I don't want. It was that serious. Everybody knows the story now, but 
when Bobby told the story, and I think that was why there were so many that he was so close with his mom, but he really respected his dad. He still had that thing that he, he didn't want to let his dad down. His dad had obviously pushed him as a player and he never wanted to let him down. There was still a real bond. It was in, the, the whole family. It was incredible. Like it's the story, got, they were still very much in love, the mom and the dad. It was incredible once they got together and, and, and they had this, this incredible bond. Although the story is so, you know, it's got a violent side of it. that's not fun to talk about at all, but through it all, they loved their son so much. And I think it was still like when she talked about him before she passed, talked about the dad, she just kind of did it with a smile on her face and how much love she had for them and how much they wanted Bobby to succeed. And he truly is one of the classiest gentlemen that I've ever come across in business, Bobby Ryan Jr. And uh, he just everything, he just handles himself in such a polite fashion. And, uh, and, you know, now it's just like he went through that adversity. And I think that was probably some of the demons that had kind of bottled up inside of him when he had the issue with the substance abuse. And I think now he's just in a great spot. He's a, he's a father. He's happily married. I mean, unfortunately, he got hurt this year with Detroit. But it, it, it is a great story. But I felt I had to let the proper people know so they could understand the story. Like, I mean, I didn't want Dave Branch to be finding out about something secondhand years later. And then, you know, and, and, but I I think a lot of the people in the OHL kind of were aware of the story, but they were trying to, I hate, it's just human nature. Some of them were trying to use it more in a competitive way to keep them down and unhappy as opposed to supporting them. And I don't know the lady's name, but Anaheim, he mentions her all the time and he's mentioned her in all of his speeches. Anaheim sent up a lady, one of their, uh, she was like a, a, a psychologist that real sports psychologist that worked with them. And I didn't know her name offhand, but he basically used her like a, like a, a surrogate mom. And I know she took him through a lot of this process and we opened, there was never any time that we were like, no boy, like if Bobby needed it, we had that support staff through Anaheim there for him. And uh, it, it ended up really helping him out in the long run. He, he was very thankful for that. And again, he's such a grounded kid. I mean, he laughs like he'll joke now, like what his last contract was something like seven times 7 million or something. And then he'd be like, uh, he'll send a text like, Hey, Fuchs, do you think, uh, think Vegas is going to pick me up in the expansion draft, making seven schmill. And (laughs) I think you're kind of going to be stuck in Ottawa there for a while. (laughs) But he's just, uh, he is, he's he's just a good person. So I'm glad that he's in a happy place. And I, I I think, I don't think he's done playing yet. He, He still really loves the game. It's not about, clearly not about money anymore, but he loves the mm-hmm. game. On oh, Farzi, we lost you. You froze, Farzi. He might have uh, had some technical difficulties over there in that part of Kitchener. I have this sense if I feel a tough question coming, I have the ability to freeze the box. I like that. Um, <laughs> oh, let's ask you a question. He'll pop back on. Um, but being in on sound and going from Oshawa to that small market, how much of a challenge was it for you to become accustomed with how things worked up there? Well, I, I loved it because Oshawa is a small town. It was also a hockey town. So mm-hmm. it was very, uh, you were very much identified with, but not nearly the level <laughs> that I found out in Owen Sound. Like, uh, like as far as going to the grocery store or like uh, just little things that are completely 
I mean, at the time I was married, my daughters were born there. I mean, it was like my wife was like a, like a, she go, geez, I was in the grocery store today and everybody's asked me about the team. And it was such a tight knit community. Mm-hmm. Um, I loved it. I, I thought it was great for me because I learned how to deal with, again, that's the only team that's, you know, like Fred Wallace and at the time Will, William Walker, who's passed. I mean, these guys were on you like you're, you know, like it was the New York Times. <laughs> And and I, and they all had their heart in the right place and stuff like that. But I mean, it, it gave me an ability to deal with the media at a much smaller level. But I, I had such a affinity for the community. I like I truly loved it. Like I, I we bought a beautiful home. As I said, my daughters were born there, and I mean, like the ownership group there, they were like, I'm still so connected with them. Like Dr. Mm-hmm. Bob Severs, who's you know, thank God he's been battling cancer. He's in a really good spot right now. And then uh, you've got uh, as far as he quit. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> he walked away. I hope those bottles are still closed in the back. He's back. Oh, jeez, you guys. I'm so sorry. He's back. I just asked him another question. It's okay. Oh, good. That's perfect. uh, We're talking about like, and missed like Curtis McDermott, like Paul McDermott. And he was my hockey liaise, right? Because he had the big career and Peter was in there. And and at the time, Brian Johnson and Frank Coulter and and Faye, they were just wonderful people. And you didn't want to let them down. You just didn't want to let them down. But I still, like, it became like a farm system for me in Los Angeles. Like, I mean, the guys I would draft, like, I mean, the Wayne Simmons, like, I remember being on the ice, like, Trevor Lewis was there. Brad Richardson was there. Like, when we won the Stanley Cup, I was looking around like, hey, this is, boys, <laughs> we didn't get her done at the uh, OHL level, but this is pretty cool. Like, you've got three-year attack guys. I've got, I hired scouts down there from the group. Like, Mike Stuthers was running our farm team. And then, you know, Curtis McDermott comes down. I, I mean, I taught Curtis into coming as a free agent and, and he's turned into a National Hockey League player. So it, it, there were so many ties for me, uh, even Joey Joey Hishon. Like, I mean, there was a funny story because Joey ended up winning a championship. He was so – like, he was trying to get drafted by Guelph or Kitchener because that's where he lived, right? And I ended up drafting him, and he was so ticked off with me. But Joey wasn't exact – he was like, that's it, I'm going to school. And I'm like, Joey, <laughs> senior report card. <laughs> okay, I love you to death and you're hockey brilliant, but you're going to Owen Sound Secondary School <laughs> where you're going so he came up and he loved it and he won a championship right and we remained incredibly close and he was like he always says you know imagine if you didn't draft me out like it, it ended up turning unfortunately with the concussions and stuff in the in the ohl finals but it, it turned out great for him i mean he was a first round nhl pick and he's now coaching up there so the city must have been that bad for him <laughs> you talk about not getting it done in Owen sound but I want to look back on the 05 season. So Bobby Ryan is the cornerstone that you've built around. And when we talk about the 05 season in the Ontario Hockey League, everybody naturally talks about the London Knights with good reason. But until they went and loaded up at the trade deadline, Mike, how close did you think you were? We were really close. And that was a great team. Uh, But it was so weird. It was like our year. It was weird. Looking at all year, they were ranked number one in Canada and we were ranked number two. Right. And then, it's funny because Kitchener, I mean, I think I think that's – we lost to Kitchener, didn't we? Did we end up First beating? round, yeah. It was like – and that's when I learned what the Mike Richards phenomenon was about. You know what I mean? And I end up winning a Stanley Cup with Mike Richards. I mean, the day that everything is so interchanged, it's like we end up beating Peter DeBoer in the Stanley Cup championship – with Mike Richards and a bunch of it, hockey's that way. Like we thought for sure that that team, we were built to get by the, by the, um, sorry, the Rangers in the first round and he single-handedly, and we got so caught up with uh, what's his name, Adam. I think it was Adam Keefe 
running around that what we've learned instead of, and Mike Richards was going after, they were going after our skill guys and we were going after their tough guys. And it's like, <laughs> it made no sense. We got so caught up in it and it was a tough, that was probably the toughest loss for me in the Ontario Hockey League with the team we had. But it also showed you what true greatness is out of Mike Richards. Like, I mean, I, I talk to Ricky when I can still because there for me, I remember coaching him in the under-17s. And he was injured, and he still came up to the All-Star game because I said, listen, the fans really get need to see you, right? And I think Kitchener didn't want him to come because he was on crutches or something like that, and it, did, it wasn't a good look. I don't even remember what the injury was, but he still came to the All-Star game and sat in and lo- allowed the fans to get to meet Mike Richards. So I just thought this guy, and still to this day, I think he's one of the most true, uh, best leaders I've ever been around at any level. So looking back on it, as much as it sucked, you see the guys that were the key p- components in those areas. Like you, with Corey Perry, like Corey Perry used to fight Mike Richards and they're buddies. Like there was a level of throwdown and compete with that group of Ontario Hockey League players that was just charged second to none. And I give them all the credit in the world. And then the next, I mean, the next year when we were supposed to lose, we end up winning in Kitchener. I still remember the, the overtime goal. And, and that, that's, I think when Pete and I and Pete and I and Spotter had, like I grew up Spotter, like we used my right winger and Henry Carr, but it was this thing of that. Okay. Kitchener broke our hearts the year before and I was throwing rose petals at them. And the next year we broke their hearts and they wouldn't talk to me. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, guys, I understand the difference between, you know, the Red Sox and the, where the, whatever the Seattle Mariners, but let's hear the Yankees and the Seattle Mariners, but give us some credit here. And, uh, and to this day, like, I mean, that rivalry, like when we were going through our coaching change in uh, Los Angeles, Dean Lombardi gave me an assignment and said, tell me who the next best coach is. Who's the next guy? And I said, without a question, it's Pete DeBoer in my mind. I said, he's brilliant. I love the job he's done. And we actually met Pete and it was like when it was like an old uh, Humphrey Bogart movie. It was like, it was a mid-season. That's how I learned too. If you're going to make coaching change mid-season, how difficult it is because you don't want people to see you're talking and you have to meet the person in person. I remember being at a, the airport, like the Sheridan Airport Hotel, right in the middle of the airport in some dark corner where I just put Pete DeBoer and Dean Lombardi in the corner. And then I just kind of was on guard to make sure nobody saw that they could, they could interview. But I think Pete at that time, I mean, we've become, we were good friends then and we're much closer now, but I think he understood then how much I respected him and respected the competitive nature of it. And actually as a coach and, 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 Spotter and I go way back, but Pete and I became a lot closer after that. And then it was so strange to think about the past we've come. And now here I am, I've gone from, and we joked about this because I, I went from Owen Sound and now I'm living on Manhattan beach in Los Angeles <laughs> and he's in New Jersey. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm like, which is kind of like I'm in Kitchener and he's kind of like in Owen Sound. <laughs> <laughs> and we just talked just the, the, the superlatives where the organ and obviously Jersey has incredible. I just, we were just talking climate and stuff like that. Not because blue Lamorello was had many cups, but it was just, it was really tough and gratifying obviously to win the cup or first Stanley cup. But it was like looking at the bench, I was still just shaking my head at that rivalry thinking, wow, I can't shake these guys. <laughs> Here we are in the NHL. <laughs> I got Spot and Peter on the other, you know, and those relationships have developed, like even like with Mike Bellucci and stuff like that. Uh, Mike Foligno and I remain incredibly close. Um, so there's just so many. I mean, that's what the OHL for me 
the relationships just incredible, just absolutely incredible. And uh, especially coming in for me because, I mean, I'd played Germany and I mean, I had great university career. I kind of blew a scholarship up. I played some good hockey in Europe, but coming into the OHL, you go in that first meeting, it's like the who's who of there's Sherry Basson, who, you know, you've seen on the OHL coverage and there's Dave Branch and there's Burt Templeton and Brian Kilray and Larry Mavity. And I just gravitated to those guys and it was out of respect, but I was very chirpy with them. And I, uh, I remember the first night I went out for some pops with Mavity and Killer. I probably took me about three or four days to get over it, <laughs> but they were true legends, like true legends. And I actually went up when Bert Templeton was, when I got fired from St. Mike's, I went up with Bert. He was, he was fading from uh, cancer. And I went up and spent some time with him because I wanted to spend rub shoulders with the legends and, and learn what it was all about. And I became really close with Mav. And, uh, and uh, when I'd go into Kingston to scout Kingston with, when I was with the Kings, I'd sit with Larry Mavity. And when I'd go in to Ottawa, Brian Kilray would pick me up and, and we'd sit and have our time together. So those guys were such incredible and they're different. I mean, obviously times have changed. <laughs> like, I don't, I, I like, it's not like when I got on the bus with the Kings, I'd fire up a cigar and put on an NFL game. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, it was such to learn that those guys and how much they meant to the game of hockey and still do. It was just a great experience for me. And the other guy was obviously Sherry Basson because like a complete mentor for me so what was that night like when you wrote for those beers I surprised how many beers I could drink but it's like you just look at the size of like some of their guts you know like <laughs> Mav it just throws them back like it's it's like popcorn and then I I got this thing where they had me doing this we used to have the referee uh it was like they were trying to bring the referees and the management teams and the coaches together so we'd be a little bit more kumbaya uh, these social things and they decided what a good idea would be branchy and Ted Baker said, Futes, why don't you get up and do a, say a few words, like have a little bit of a roast. Right. And so I went up and I just, the gloves were off and uh, I went pretty, I remember what I say, I kind of bugged Stan Butler about his dress attire. So he didn't talk to me for a couple of years. And then uh, a couple of refs were there. And um, I said, uh, you know, the golf tournament went well, but uh, you know, it was two uh, two referees ended up tied, but we couldn't do the playoffs because we know you guys aren't you guys aren't allowed to do playoffs. And I specifically named the refs, and so I had enough enemies. And I know Mav, I had I did that like that Johnny Carson sis boom ba, and I I'd go like uh, thirty kilometers, and then they go the the amount of kilometers Larry Mavity puts on his car scouting per year. <laughs> like, <laughs> So we had uh, we had a lot of laughs, and uh, some guys are a little bit better at self depreciating humor than others. But it was great; it was a good bond session for us. And I know, I know that like Killer just used to think that was the most fun moments ever. But that those social nights, those guys are veterans; like they know what they're doing. <laughs> the next morning, I'm literally sitting there with my head pounding at the morning meeting, and they're just like, "Hey, uh, <laughs> what are you doing tonight?" And I'm like, "I'm good." Good tonight. <laughs> Good tonight. There's uh, there's another big name in coaching that's still going at it in the Ontario Hockey League, and you were an assistant with him in Oshawa. That would be Mr. George Burnett. What did you learn working with George? Well, it opposites attract. <laughs> <laughs> because uh, I went from being as, as Sherry Bass, and he says, you think you're the – like I thought I was running good practices, and I thought like I didn't have that – 
bench. I was like 27 years old as a head coach of an expansion team. And we were getting outshot like 62 to 10 every night. I got Mark. Thank God I brought Mark Osborne in because he's, he really helped me. Like my practices were, I had the, the, you know, I don't want to, the Sheldon Keefe, <laughs> the Sheldon Keefe, Dave Frost, uh, group was quite they put a few years of my uh, belt at the time there too so that was an interesting time but to come in with George all of a sudden I watched the first practice and I was like this guy's a machine like every like he was well first of all he had a teaching background but the way he broke down practices and how each drill had a purpose towards your system and stuff like that and it was and he was dry I mean like I mean dry in a lot of senses he had a very dry sense of humor uh, he didn't drink at all, which is very different from the Mavin killer. <laughs> so our personalities, but we really hit it off. And he, he was very much, he molded me very much. And, and I was on the bench with him and we had Joe Sorella who was up top. And uh, he, I think he started to identify uh, my passion for the scouting side of things. And there were teams calling like at the time, I think it was Sudbury and uh, Sarnia had called to get permission about, you know, here, you want another shot at being a head coach? And I was like, if I had gone that road, I'd be done. And they were like, if you get a chance, like I'd already got my in with the under 17 programs, which George was really promoting as far as being, um, I, I coached for a little bit, but as far as being uh, part of the management staffs and the management crews there. And we had great success with that. And for me, that was like insider trading on having all the top players. And now you know, what it's how Mike Richards ticks when you're like, I mean, our number one line was Mike Richards, um, Anthony Stewart and Nathan Horton at the one tournament. I think Jeff Carter was on our third line or something like that. So when you start to get around these guys and the reason we lost, cause Paul Bissonette was our number one defenseman. <laughs> <laughs> I love telling there's another one that I had the fortune of having an Owen sound. And then he won a Calder cup with us down in the, in the States. But it, it was such an, I learned so much from George. Um, I think I was a good balance for him because of how much the guys could come to me. And I was a bit more, I was a lot looser. Who, who's kidding who? You guys have met George. It's not like it's sometimes it's like pulling a tooth, getting a word out of him. But he's a wonderful human being who's got hockey knowledge coming all over the zoo. I mean, he'd already coached in the National League in Edmonton and he loved the game and uh, he loved to golf and we got along incredibly well. And he really pushed me to go to Owen Sound to the next level. And I owe everything to him and Bass for really promoting me and believing in me to do that. And I mean, I still, I still call him coach. I mean, I mean, I watched him last year and watched the magic he wove with them with the Guelph team. And I mean, everywhere he goes, he wins, right? Everywhere he goes, he wins. And again, he's, he's still dry. <laughs> he's still George, but I can get him laughing. I remember once I had him in hysterics and I thought it'd be a great time to run out and grab my parents and bring him down to see him laughing his head off. And by the time I, I got back, he was already, <laughs> He was back to no smiley George, so I'd blown my moment. We never have a problem getting a word out <laughs> word out of him. He always gives us like five, six minute long answers. It's been great. Um you you mentioned he's just awesome. Just awesome. You've mentioned Sherry, obviously, numerous times. Uh what's that relationship like? You called him a mentor. And you did a great impression, by the way. Well, I did that's another guy. I did the impression with the full hip walk and stuff at the uh I had him down to a science, but Bass is Bass is like a second father for me. I mean, and he literally, because he truly cared and he tells it like it is, but you've got to be prepared to listen to the same story seven or eight times. Like it's fresh. <laughs> and he always tells it like it's the first time you've heard it. So, uh, but again, I mean, he was a mentor on how you, like the amount, like he had such pride in 
even Frankie J, who I mean has passed on, he was his number, he was his top scout. And you just learn so much sitting in the crowd from Frankie about what it's like to evaluate a player. But Bass was about building a team and identifying character and how important character was. And uh, again, I mean, he's like an icon for what, 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 what was done in the Ontario Hockey League success he had. And then I always bug him when he's like, just like, like he made, like he drafted Connor McDavid. And I'm like, <laughs> I said, did you even put that on your resume? That's like me saying, yeah, well, you know what? I drafted Drew Doughty. Yeah. Well, as to quote Bass, he goes, you can make that pick from a newspaper. <laughs> so, yeah. So, but he's, uh, I mean, I know we had some health issues, but I always, we talk about everything. I mean, he was at my wedding and I still remember him. I think Dave was there too, Brad. I remember Bass. I didn't know whether it was a dance or it was just him walking. <laughs> Cause that, when that hip gives out, it looks like he's kind of got a little of that Donald Trump dance routine, but he had a great time. And then I, had Eric Lindros at my wedding too. So that was a nice component. <laughs> Did you put them at the same table? Those things I had to really spread out the tables <laughs> just in case the Quebec incident came up at the wedding. So it was, it was something. So he's a special man. And again, he keeps filled with energy. I still think he'd love to be a part of a team. Like I don't know why an Ontario team wouldn't want to pick him up as a consultant, if they could deal with the, this, he, if George is six minute answers, Bass is like thirty six. <laughs> he's a he's a great man. You you touched on it earlier, Mike. The the Owen Sound connections that were still there or were there in LA that you know as you went into the National Hockey League and of course as you win those Stanley Cups. Uh, what's it What's it like? Uh, you know, in in your role, director of player personnel, lead scouting, winning a Stanley Cup in the pros. I can't put it into words. I can't. The guy, I'll get emotional because uh, I really felt, I really felt that I'd let Owen Sound down. I, I, I think I was just happy because we didn't cross the line. We, we, we were now, we were on the birth, everybody, there was no problem with people report, but I felt, you know, they had just offered me a five-year contract to stay. And here I am. I was leaving unfinished business behind. But I was not going to – the challenge ahead was like I knew that when Dean pulled me in and said, right now we're the Owen Sound of the NHL, and you did such a good job building the culture through the players that we've got to build a culture here where it's not about guys come here to play because they want to be on the beach and their wives want to shop at Rodeo Ride. We want them to come here to win Stanley Cups. And, uh, and it was fun because I had a lot of insider knowledge on guys that I'd been through the wars with – and I mean, Don Cherry said it, he goes, uh, and I'm not, cause it's your staff, myself and Mark and Eddie, but he said, Mike Feud had built an Ontario hockey league all-star team in Los Angeles. And they were all my guys. It was, I'm not, it was like Pearson Defoley. Okay. We're going to trade Simmons and Shanner feuds, but you're bringing back Mike Richards. Okay. We're going to trade for Jeff Carter, you know, Dowdy, they're all Jake Muzzin. I was like the name, Brad Richardson, Trevor Lewis. It was, it, it was incredible looking around the room at seeing the guys that I had been up through the battles with were now wearing the same Jersey and then to win it. Oh, it's, it's, everything goes through your mind. I mean, uh, cause in the way we won it to the first time around, we, we went up three, nothing in every series. So, and each game was a battle, but when you have that much, we were never, if you lose tonight, you're done. Right. And then in the last game against when finally New Jersey got it to three games to two, 
we got a five minute major and our power play was cold and we were at home and we scored like, I think we scored five on the power play or something. And it was like, so we were winning five, nothing after the first period. So now you got 40 minutes where that's going through your head. Like you think you're pretty sure you're going to win, but, and then it goes, what are you going to do? I can't believe this. You know, you're emotional about Owen sound. You're emotional about your family. You're like, what am I going to do with the cup? You know, uh, I'm bringing it to Owen sound. That's the first thing that I'm bringing it to Owen sound. And, and it's the first place I went with it. I brought it to Owen sound. I brought my daughters in a big limousine with my mom. My dad was actually in Malaysia at the time teaching school and brought it right to Owen Sound. We took it to downtown Owen Sound and all those people. I wanted them to know that uh, this is this is this is a part of me, right? Your community. This is where my daughters were born. And if you hadn't allowed me, if you had had handed me the keys to the car with this program, I could never have experienced this. And uh, and that's what it was all about. And then to win it the second time. I mean, once you win it once, you wonder, well, maybe I'll never. And then we went to the conference final the next year, and then the next year we won it again. And I'm like, wow. And if we hadn't had so many self-inflicted wounds, like Slava Boyanov, who at the time was just a little bit behind Drew Doughty, that's how good he was, and on a great contract. And then Mike Richards had his problems, and Jared Stoll got in a little trouble. So we had all these self-inflicted wounds that I think took us away from at least another run, like another good, like we were that deep and everybody was on great contracts. And then once that happened, you know, we had to find a guy to fill Slava's spot, which we, we couldn't do. And then we, you know, we overpaid Marion Gabrick instead of just winning the first, you know, and then you lose Justin Williams. And all of a sudden you see those pieces that were such glue falling apart, but nobody can take away what you did. Um, and what we accomplished as a team, I, I still think about those days. And when you start to go back in the pictures, you just well up. But it's so exciting. It's even like you're, you're going on the ice. The first time I'm like, oh, my God, what if I can't lift it? What if it's too heavy? And then they hand it to you, and you could literally twirl it around like <laughs> I was going to fire it into the crowd. It was so – it's just like feathers. It's feathers. And then your day with the cup, you've got like everybody's, yeah, maybe I'll keep it small. No, maybe I'll keep it at about 500. <laughs> <laughs> you call every friend you have, and it's like I said, because, I mean, I'm a big cardio guy, but I've had some upper body surgery, so – I literally, in the rules with the cup, you have to be the person to pour it and carry it and stuff like on the day. So the next day I carried it and poured so many drinks out of the cup. I couldn't, I literally needed to go to a chiropractor. <laughs> I, my upper body was so sore. I remember because the second day I was handing it off to Tyler to Foley, which is another, it's just an incredible story when you're, you've known a kid since Pee Wee, and now you're handing on the Stanley cup. And the, you know, it was just, it was, it was incredible just an incredible feeling. And again, that's why for me, I'm one of those guys. I, I, there's a lot of guys in hockey that really piss me off because they don't like to see other people succeed um, in a, in their own shallow way. It's about if I can't have it, you can't have it. Whereas I'm like, I want Pete DeBoer and Steve spot to win a Stanley cup. You know what I mean? I mean, I, I don't want them to win it at my expense, <laughs> but those are guys that deserve it. You know what I mean? They deserve it. And so that's the way I look at things. Like my, if I, if I see a team, like when I see a team like St. Louis hosted and my director of scouting from Ian McClellan, who I recommended to the St. Louis blues, who's now a Stanley cup champion. That's the first call I make or to Billy Armstrong. Like there's some people you're not as happy for because there's some people that just aren't happy for other people, but the people that are good people in this, and there's a ton of them when they get a chance to experience that, you just got to feel great for them. It's just such an incredible experience. And that's why somebody made the comment to me and it really, they would said, you got to be really pissed off with Owen Sound winning. And I went, are you kidding me? 
are you kidding me? <laughs> Pissed off. I said, I'm the happiest, like outside of that organization. The, they finished the, they finished the, they finished the novel for me. That's what was supposed to happen. So there wasn't an ounce of, Oh man, they got it done without me. It was, they got it done. Cause that same ownership group that took me under their wing and allowed me to build the program. They deserve that. And that community deserved that. I remember reading somewhere about a uh, LA Kings defenseman upon seeing Drew Doughty in the dressing room for the first time, questioning who the heck did we draft? Look at this. And then on the ice, he went, my bad, my bad. <laughs> this player is good. Did you get any pushback or any, was there any worry on your end when it came to Drew Doughty and his never, off ice? There was never, well, when he was in Guelph and I heard what his weight was and when he told me what he ate after games, there was a little bit of a concern, but what Drew has, you can't teach. And uh, he's got hockey sense is an often heard word, but when you combine that, he's one of the most competitive human beings that I've ever been around in anything. Like he hates to lose. So I remember, and he hates the story because we told it over and over again, but yeah, he didn't exactly wasn't chiseled granite coming out of Guelph. He was like, and it was crazy because he was playing like, we have one ISO where he actually, he changes after about a five minute shift and the puck goes down to the other end and, and, and the puck comes back and he's back on the ISO. <laughs> so they, they're at, actually, you don't have time to turn the camera off because he never, he was only on the bench from the transition from in and out and he was back on again. So it was concerning to me that a kid that was playing 35 minutes a night was putting on weight. <laughs> that was a bit of a, but we put this challenge to him that, listen, we know Stamkos is going first overall. Drew, just get yourself, once you get that body, what you do, it's like Toffoli. Same thing with Toffoli. Like, he didn't exactly look like Ravishing Rick Rude without his shirt on when we got him either. But by the end of it, this guy's once he gets himself in NHL shape and starts looking after his body, now everything that nobody else can do naturally, he does naturally because he's got the tools. Mm-hmm. And you've got to put in that work. And, and, and Drew is getting by just being in shape. Like he'd come in, I guess what you call it, you say skinny fat. Like he'd come in and the spitness tests were not pretty, but the first combines he looked, cause they all came out in under armor and he was so excited. <laughs> he just looked, he had lost like 25 pounds for the combines. And then Zach Bogosian came out. I think they played like the uh, ultimate warrior music as he came out, like throwing dumbbells all over the place. And there's Drew doing his flex, whatever the thing, but he got through it. And then he started to put muscle on and his first few fitness tests were from a pro standpoint, they weren't good, but he got on the ice and people were like, Oh my God, <laughs> that's, that's like, this guy's painting Picasso's out here. I don't care what his body looks like, but of course I think now Drew's seen it. Like he had a little bit of every time he has a little fallback, he starts to take that level of fitness to another level to the point he's in the best shape of his life. Now he will say that the best shape of Drew Doughty's life <laughs> still isn't going to get you on the front of a magazine, but when you combine the competitiveness, now his body's in a – I just said, you imagine what you're going to be able to do if you have the best cardio and you are a little stronger. Because he likes to hit too, right? So if you're hitting like that and you don't have the proper shoulder, shoulder strength, it's going to hurt you as much as it's hurting the other guy. And he bought into it. And it's – I mean, as I said, I, I just sat there and marveled. And they did such a good job always having a – like I remember he's made so many guys like – He's the millionaire maker, eh? Like who, but he, he had Sean O'Donnell first, who was a great mentor for him. And then, you know, Willie Mitchell. And then all of a sudden 
it's just insert name here. Every guy that you got to be defense partner was became a millionaire. Like Ray McNabb, millions. He's <laughs> like, I want to be Drew Doughty's partner. Like right, like he had the great guys. Like Rob Scuderi was a great mix, and then I think we brought in uh, Derek Forbert. Same thing. I want to play with Drew Daddy. Okay, everybody wants to play with Drew Daddy because you're gonna. It's the same thing you said. You're gonna get cookies because he's gonna set you up, and you're gonna probably be plus thirty or forty because that's the way he does it. But I know he's going through a tough time now because he doesn't like to lose, but. Uh, nobody it wasn't quite as bad as some of the other guys like as far as their overall fitness because again it just but it wasn't an NHL it wasn't an NHL ready physique put it that way you talked about how happy you were uh, for the Owen Sound attack when they finally captured that championship and you also referenced that sort of sense of unfinished business when you turned down their contract extension because you knew it was time for that next challenge for you but 07 in Owen Sound too was a year that that you put something together that you thought was going to be a championship team and it just didn't work out. How many times do you replay that over? The last, like, it kills me because I learned a really hard lesson. Uh, you don't owe anybody. Like sometimes you're trying to do the right thing. Cause it's, and it's, I mean, it's a, it's a quick story cause it actually helped Kitchener out, but Peterson McCallis was on waivers. Right. And, I thought Peter Simicalis would be a perfect fit for Bobby Ryan. And I actually flew down to watch him because I knew he wasn't playing in the minor leagues in the American league and saw what I saw. And I wanted him badly. And I knew he was going on waivers and David Clarkson was on the team at the time. And as soon as David Clarkson saw me, I knew the Kitchener Rangers were going to get a phone call. Like what the hell is Mike Feuda doing? And I remember what the heck they were. It was clear. It was Utica or something, wherever the, wherever the devil's farm team was. So I knew Kitchener would be on to me and he went on waivers and all I had to do was claim him. And I called Brad Selwood to tell him I got to do this. And he just went off. I mean, if you can't do that, I'm going to look like a, you know, he's not going to come and report to the Oshawa generals. And all of a sudden you're going to get him. He's going to come to one sound. And he talked me out of it and I should never let him talk me out of it because I wasn't, I was just doing my job and I didn't claim Peter. And sure enough, when he had his choice, he's a Kitchener Ranger three weeks later. And that's not, that's good recruiting on their part, but I could have blocked that. And in the interim, I just completely screwed up. Uh, I ended up, I got a call. I trusted an agent that I was supposed to get a kid named Thomas Kanya, who was a second round NHL pick was supposed to report who was going to take up an overage spot and, uh, and, um, European spot. So it was two slots. So I can't even, I remember moving my European at the time out to Guelph, who I can't remember his name at this stage, but I traded Igor Gongolski to clear up a spot who was a, he was, he was an overage, but he was the perfect fit for us. He, he ended up scoring 40 goals the next year. And, and I just ended up and all of a sudden Thomas Kanya agent says, no, nah, he's going to finish the year in Europe. He's getting too much money. Simicalis. So I didn't even have, here's a team that's supposed to be built to win. And I only had two overages. So that's on me. And I, I just learned a lesson from it because I was trying to be man up with Brad Selwood when all I would, I should have just claimed him and said, Brad, I'll make this up to you down the road. I could say, I know he was like, Oh my God, he had such a hate on for the Kitchener Rangers that he was like, if I had known that they were going to end up with them, you should have taken them. And I'm like, bro, really, Brad? <laughs> Let's roll back that conversation. So anyway, tonight, it was just one of those things. I left that team shorthanded. Uh, I did. And, uh, and there was other things. But I also learned a little bit about listening to your coach because we were always like when we, we finally hit it out of the park with Mike Uzis, 
but we never really had that goalie that brought fear into people's minds. And um, sure enough, we went on the road once. And I mean, Anthony Guadagnolo, God, God bless him, great kid, but he shut our, he shut us out in Windsor and our coaches came back. Just, we have found, <laughs> we have found it. <laughs> we, we, you know, we found Johnny Bauer stuck in Patrick Waugh stuck in this. And I made a deal that I never wanted to make. Um, and I said, the only thing that didn't make it was, didn't make it the worst trade in the history of hockey or in my career anyways, is because Josh Bailey played in the NHL as a 19 year old, <laughs> but I ended up trading Josh Bailey to, uh, the Windsor Spitfires for Anthony Guadagnolo. And, uh, Josh and I are still very close and he's probably about to play his thousandth NHL game. And, uh, it was just one of those ones. And then two weeks later, the coaches come in and go, what a goal doesn't have it. Eh? I'm just like, <laughs> I just remember that just going as a coach, do what your coach, you know, listen to your coaches a bit, but you know, you build the team and then let them coach it. You let them coach it. And that's at the NHL level. You certainly, you know, you want to make sure you're bringing in somebody that Daryl Sutter or insert name here is going to be happy with. But if you're sold on somebody and you've done all your homework and you know, it's going to make your team better. That's my job. And then let your coach, coach the team he does the lineups and he coaches the team so it was a good lesson for all of us you mentioned almost a thousand games for josh mark giordano's almost at a thousand games what did he mean to that franchise i know it's well he mean everything i mean for me because he's still we joke all the time because he's never been drafted yet mm-hmm. <laughs> it's a great story i mean i remember getting there and seeing his name and they're like, you got to go recruit this guy because i think frank carnavalli had started a process with him and frank was let go and then uh, Mark was going to um, Ferris State on a scholarship and I went to, he was playing like single A hockey and I went and saw him and I was like, this is just kids, what is he playing here for? And he had a real, I call it, it's like an Italian beach body. They look, I say he was built like an Academy Award. So he, he was, <laughs> but he was, Peter Mavarudis, another hockey lifer, brought me to the house and I met the family and I just fell in love with the family and they put their trust in me. It was very similar to the Wayne Simmons story and uh, I signed him uh, to a, we signed him to a, yet three years of education for two years of service. So we had to guarantee him an overage year and the rest is history he came up. He did his, his equipment didn't match. Uh, the owners were like, he looked like he just came out of Westwood ring four and a 10 o'clock night, at night game. And I'm telling the trainers, get him some equipment. <laughs> like Paul McDermott's like, what is this? Like he literally looked like a garage league player and he ends up, I mean, by the end, by Christmas, he was our best, like best defenseman. His 20-year-old year, he was OHL defenseman, overage player of the year, I think it was. And then the guy that just kept him coming in, and I couldn't convince people that this guy was – like he was thinking about where, where should I go to school feuds and like use his CIS stuff. And I'm like, no, 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 no. There, and this Tom Webster came in, and Tommy, another one, unfortunately he's passed. He just loved this kid. And I said, Tommy, this kid will not make you look bad. And he brought him – he brought him to Calgary and they signed him as an unfree. He wasn't drafted again uh, and they signed him. And then he stood up for himself. And it was funny because it brings names from the past. Daryl Sutter was his coach, general manager. And he called me and he's like, Futes, they're really lowballing me here. I think I'm going to have to go to Russia for a year. And can you ask Dean Lombardi what his advice would be? And I said, well, you got to be careful. This is kind of, this isn't tampering, but I asked what advice. And he said, stay. Daryl's great. And I mean, I said, well, there's, you don't, you don't want to piss off your NHL general manager. And he did his homework and he went to Russia, played a year, came back. He was a different player because I think skating on the big surface, he was a lot leaner and the rest is he just took off. I mean, Daryl loved him. Uh, he was whatever. I mean, last year we were joking about, 
Norris Trophy winner. <laughs> Come on, Gio. <laughs> he's still not even drafted, but he's he's like I, I love him. I just his family's still wonderful and amazing. He'll call me like I think he was probably one of the first people when I when I won the first cup, the second cup. He's like, he's got two cups. Like, come on, <laughs> get two cups. He goes, I don't care. And I said, well, I said I never played. It's not like I can trade you a cup for your Morris. <laughs> but we and I think what makes me most proud, and I've said this, is is the quality of the people that. I was so fortunate and that's what made it easy for me. And I think that's why we turn things around is because bringing in a guy like a Wayne Simmons and his story is what it is. And, and Mark Giordano, uh, these quality people, and even like, even like your Scotty Trigunas and stuff like that, we had such great kids. And then they're at the, when I'm watching the NHL awards and they're having the, I don't know whether it was the Messier award for basically leadership in the community and the, basically the best person and the finalists are Mark Giordano, Wayne Simmons, and Justin Williams, who's now one of my best friends in the game. That was one of the most satisfying moments ever because look what they've become as men, right? Not only are they obviously done very well financially, but they're like pillars of the community. And it's easy for them because it's just natural, just natural for them. You mentioned a name that I had wanted to ask you about specifically too, Mike, uh, and that is Wayne Simmons because I remember a night many years ago where I was doing a post-game show after a game in Kitchener, and Wayne was was the victim of a really ugly incident that I don't think we need to rehash during an NHL exhibition uh, in London. But you called into the post-game show that night to talk about Wayne Simmons. So I think that just speaks volumes about the character that you saw. What, what would you say about Wayne Simmons and, and especially his overcoming of adversity through the career? Well, Dean Lombardi called him my son, and he's clearly not my son. <laughs> We, uh, when I met Wayne, uh, Kenny Cook and Chris Byrne had said, you got to go watch this kid in Brockville. And I actually called Sheldon Keefe about him because Kiefer, this was the first time Kiefer and I had talked since our days together in St. Mike's and he was coaching against him. And I went in and I was like, wow. And he'd been cut by the Mississauga ice dogs at, uh, as a walk-on. And, uh, I just fell in love with him, but I couldn't believe the stuff he was doing. He still had like 145 pounds. So I went and met his family. And I, this, I mean, I've told the story, but I'll try and keep it really condensed. But it, it, it basically, there was hardly any electricity at the house. And he had a scholarship to Bowling Green. And his brother was there, too. And the story kind of came out. And his parents were both there. And they're, like, basically telling me, you're taking – our son's going to Bowling Green, and you're taking away his education. Like, there was nothing about the hockey side. You're taking away our son finally. And they told me the story how – I guess the brother could have played in the CFL, but they could only afford one set of equipment and they decided it was going to be Wayne playing hockey. So I, I made them a commitment that I'd take care of their son. And uh, we drafted him, I think fifth or sixth round. I knew he was coming. He came up. And I mean, honestly, you know, for a black kid to come up in Owen Sound, there's not a lot of black kids in Owen Sound. And uh, it's a small town. Uh, he had some real problems adjusting to the league. He had some bad, bad body language. Stutz was really tough on him. And I just pulled him in and just gave it to him. It was, it was just about the body language because he could just tell he wasn't happy. And if he wasn't happy, it was going to hard, hard to get him to where we want him to go. And he made a concerted effort to just start being Wayne Train, be, the, be Simmer. And he, you could see the smile and the personality come out. And then in one week, I don't really remember the week because I know we played Kitchener in one game. He had like... And I know Brian Burke was up for one of the games. He was the OHL player of the week, but it wasn't even close. He had something like 
eight goals, three fights, like five points in it. And they were clinics, like clinics. And I also knew how tough he was too. And that was something that he had to, had to start doing. And then the hard part was, is Simmer wasn't getting a lot of play with the NHL teams. And then all of a sudden I got offered the job to leave. And uh, he was devastated. He was so ticked off with me because we had a deal. I was going to take care of him. And I went down to Los Angeles for my interview and part of my interview process, they showed me their Ontario list and said, where is, is there anything out of sorts here? And I went, well, you don't have Wayne Simmons on your list. And they said, well, where would you put him? And I said, uh, number two, uh, behind Sam Gagne. And they were like, whoa, whoa. And of course, Dean Lombardi, I won't use the exact words. He was like, this guy thinks you're an effing idiot. <laughs> he goes, he goes, you don't even have the second best player in the Ontario Hockey League on your list. Well, he's going to be the director of amateur skate. He basically throws me in with a bunch of NHL guys and scouts, and that's how he introduced me, that I think they're all idiots. So I basically was given this task of putting a video production in and showing them. And at the time, they just made changes. So it was very – Owen Sound is not a favorable place to go scout, right? So if you're running around late in the season, it's not like you're going to get up to Owen Sound. And they were out of the playoffs at the time and stuff. So I put a presentation together, and all of a sudden, here's Wayne Simmons – I think he was at number 11 on our list overall. And I'm telling Wayne Simmons that I apologize, Wayne. Uh, This is too big a decision for my family. Uh, He goes, well, are you ever going to draft me? I said, no. I said, we'll invite you as a free agent walk-on or, you know, or we'll see where the cards fall. And, uh, but I can't, you know, because Dean said, you can't tell him how much you like him or now other teams are going to find out. So Wayne just stopped talking to me, period. And then we get to the draft and first Dean says, where do you want to take him? And of course me being inexperienced at this, I said, well, nobody's really calling about him. So you can probably get him later. And Dean just lost his marbles on me. He goes, you, ah, what do you call me? An F and hump or whatever. He goes, you just convinced us that this kid's the 11th best player in the draft. And now you're going to show no, you know, you're going to try and hide him later in the draft. I'll get out of my office. So we had another meeting. I came back and he goes, where are you going to take him?" And I went right where he is in the list. So as, as fate would have it, we had a compensation pick at this end of the second round. Wayne almost was so close in the list that he could have been the first round pick. They made one adjustment. Dean said, listen, I'll give you one. The guys in the staff were really high on a player called Oscar Moeller at the time. So he was taken in the second round and we had a pick at the end of the second round. And Dean said, what do you think? And I go, yeah. So everybody just pushed the microphone my way. Like, <laughs> yeah, we believe you. We believe you. And I'm like, uh, the Los Angeles Kings take from the own sound attack, Wayne Simmons. <laughs> and sure enough, of course, the first thing is Steve Spots, and it's to this day, the text blows up. I hope you didn't sell your house in Owen Sound. <laughs> That's far. And then through this case, the only guy, Pete DeBoer, sends me a text. Like, it blew up. Like, are you kidding me? Second round? Wayne Simmons? Are you kidding me? And then Wayne's agent calls and says, Wayne just about crashed his car. Because you can't believe it, Fuge. You told him you weren't drafting him. I said, I was told I couldn't tell him I was going to draft him. So not only is Wayne, you know, excited. So he goes down there and he's comes into training, almost made training camp as an 18-year-old. He beat somebody up. And at the time, Dean couldn't believe because his vertical jump and his strength was like somebody who should be like 190 pounds, but he was still only 100. We were like, if we ever get Wayne with his power numbers, if you can ever get him to 165 pounds, he's going to be a beast. And he didn't protect the puck well. Our, our development guys worked on that. And he went back, and I helped orchestrate a trade to get him to Sault Ste. Marie. Uh, he wins a gold medal with the World Junior. He comes back, and, I mean, whatever. He's almost 1,000 games. 
he was, uh, it was devastating. That was when Dean, when Dean called me in his office and said, Futes, I got good news and bad news. The good news is we're getting your guy, Mike Richards. The bad news is I got to trade your son and, uh, and Braden Shen. Uh, and I'm like, I was this like, and that's what another learning curve for me, because when they're on a list and they're just numbers, they're just assets, right? They're just draft names. But when they become part of your family, then they become so much more than that. They're no longer, they're, they're your, you're, they're your boys, they're your family. So to have them move on and then to see obviously what an icon he became in uh, Philly and then really disappointing for me that he didn't get the contract he deserved there. Uh, but he was an NHL all-star and he got to come back to Los Angeles as an NHL all-star. So that was pretty special. And uh, obviously he's a father now and he's a Toronto Maple Leaf. And we had a lot of discussion over the summer about that. Um, and I just love him. I'm so proud of him. Um, now, Braden Shen calls me and says, he's, you know, we I've got my ring now. We got to get similar ring. <laughs> he goes, <laughs> because everybody always said, he goes, they always used to get it when they were on their run in Philadelphia. The media was trying to say the Kings, like I actually remember watching the interview where they were like, when Simmer was an all-star, they were like, look at right now where you've got Shen, like Mike Richards doesn't play anymore. And you guys are like tearing it up here in Philly. Philly won the trade and Simmer basically told the guy to half off, <laughs> won the trade. They won two Stanley cups. You can won the trade. <laughs> so it was just the honesty that comes out and the competitive nature, but that's, he's just, I mean, how cool would it be for him being a Toronto kid to come back full circle? And I mean, I don't want to jinx that team who seems to always find a way to get it not done, but I'm really excited about the group they put together and for Wayne Simmons to win in the Stanley cup as a Toronto Maple Leaf would be something. Their head coaches came up numerous times in this conversation. What was it like back in the day with the frost five and St. Mike's? I'm not going to get into it too much. It was a challenge. Uh, yeah. It was horrible. It was absolutely horrible. I mean, the story, you guys, somebody can read a book about what was going on. But out of every – what Frost was doing was absolutely despicable. I mean, I had I used to laugh because I had the best power play in the league and I had nothing to do with it. <laughs> He's up in the crowd doing the Macarena, and these guys are changing spots on the ice and going all over the place. And I had no control over them, and it was embarrassment for me. It could end ended my career. But what I will tell you is that out of that group, Ryan Barnes is – Guy is incredible. Got his life together. He's a great agent, great father, great coach. Sean Cation, I understand, is the, a police officer out east. He's got his life together. Um, Sheldon Keefe reached out to me. Uh, we started just exchanging kind of pleasantries and like, how's this kid in your league? How's this? Because he knew that. Well, he knew. He knew what he'd done. Like how what he'd done for my life and when we had to trade them all to Barry and stuff and the questions that I was being asked and then hearing all the other stuff on top of it. Um, and we just got together and we talked about it and he said, hey, do you think I could ever get in the Ontario hockey league? And I said, uh, I went up and I, I said, listen, you got to make peace with Dave branch. So I called Dave and I said, uh, Dave. And I mean, Dave was not pleased with the call. Um, I mean, everybody knows where he was shunned at the handshake there when the Memorial cup. And I said, Dave, I've, I've spent some quality time here. I would never do this unless I'm sure that this guy's legitimately got his life around and he's not nothing to do with the other guy. And I ended up just got him together and Dave called me and said, Futes, that was awesome. That was really good. He's come a long way as a young man and we've, we kind of buried the hatchet. And then uh, um, Kyle was going through some changes up there with uh, Whitey Stapleton, I think up in uh, Sault Ste. Marie and he reached out and asked me about Sheldon. And I said, I'm sold. I mean, I know he's, he's now 
Dave would be okay with it because they've, they've buried the hatchet and Sheldon uh, went up and he and Kyle hit it off. And I've never looked back from it. I mean, uh, because I think it, it, it's, it, I, I like stories that end with a happy ending. I know other people want to give never, nobody a second chance or something, but when I saw him and his wife and his kids together, then I was sold that this guy's got his life together. And unfortunately on the other end of it, like Mike, Mike Danton, slash Jefferson reached out to me with the same kind of, Hey, feuds I know. And I couldn't, I mean, I met with him and stuff and I just wasn't there. I, I just didn't think, I think there was still a connection between him and Dave and I just couldn't do it. But that being said, I love, I love, I've got Mike Danton on my Instagram or I love him. I mean, he was one of the most competitive kids. He's a great dad. He's got great kids. And I mean, it's just uh it's a shame that pe- people can get manipulated at that age. And it could have got a lot worse for a lot of people. So to think that to think that someone can turn the corner, that's why when I hear some of these guys, I see Sheldon's a coach of Toronto Maple Leafs. When some people are talking about some of these other issues that nobody deserves a second chance. Nobody deserves a second chance. Well, you know what? If you've really turned your life around and you're really sincere about it, yeah, I think you did deserve a second chance. So what he's done, I think, is awesome. I think he's a great coach. I think he's very respectful of the game now. Uh, and, I mean, looks good on him. I mean, I still think it's a tough market to be in. I mean, as much as he's had a great year, if they don't win, he's going to be coming out of it. They're going to be in all the scrutiny that comes with being a Toronto Maple Leaf with a team that they've kind of done a good job on. But I'm excited for him. I mean, between Sheldon, Wade Simmons, Jake Muzzin, Jack Campbell, like I got a lot of horses in the race there. I mean, I, uh, I mean, when Kyle Clifford was there last year, I mean, I coached, I mean, I used, I joked the night that Spez had the hat trick about calling him because I remember calling him for an illegal because he's got this his stick was like this and I called him for an illegal stick in Belleville one night and he broke his stick <laughs> and he was so mad at me he goes Futes how could you do that and I go because your stick's the boomerang it's a rule and I'm trying to and he still remembered how upset he was with it because when he broke his stick I the ref said well we can't measure it I said no but that's an unsportsmanlike conduct so he got an unsportsmanlike conduct for breaking <laughs> <laughs> we didn't score the power play, but he got me back because my last game as a head coach, um, I knew I was getting the pipe at St. Mike's and we were, we were out shooting Mississauga. Jimmy Halton was, who was in my wedding party was coaching Mississauga and we were out shooting about 65 to 10 and Spezza scored an overtime to beat us. And I got fired coming off the bench. So he can stick the illegal stick in his ear. <laughs> didn't want to talk about the overtime goal, but that's great so many nice stories that would come of it between the Thorntons and that but I mean for me now I don't cheer for teams um I mean I want to get back into it I cheer for players that I've been a part of and I mean if, I, if there's a player that whether it's I, I don't have to have coached them I just had to if they've rubbed me the right way you're, you're hoping they do well and if they you know you don't really cheer against anybody but I mean that that's why this leaf thing it's pretty cool watching some of these guys that you had a little part in their careers kicking the can around in Toronto Futes, I know we have to let you get to work, and it's a it's a tough gig watching hockey. But but quick, Chris and I, as broadcast partners, have uh, taken on or carried on the tradition that Don Cameron started with me, and that is every rink you go into, you buy a fifty fifty ticket. <laughs> What's it like winning a fifty fifty draw, Futes? Well, <laughs> Don Cameron was in that booth when I broke in <laughs> so many years back. And I still the look in his face. I was like, what am I doing in here? I know just to sell, just the real, I got so ticked off one night and, and we, and I ran in and busted in your door there in Kitchener while you guys were in the middle of the broadcast. It was like a scene out of the WWE. And after I was done screaming at you guys, for some reason, unbeknownst to myself now, either, <laughs> it 
it was one of those things that was a living a learning lesson. But uh, I was in, I was recently divorced and I was in Edmonton and I've never bought a 50, 50. I mean, I think my parents and I won a fruit basket or something at Pine Point Arena watching a lacrosse game once. And uh, they keep flicking up in the boards that it's like, I'm like, wow, it's like $87,000 for the 50, 50 draw. So I get up and I had flown in early the night. So I had all the tickets I didn't have any scouts with me, no teammates with me. So I had like eight seats beside me. I've got a big, I remember a big Wayne Gretzky bottle of wine that they gave the scouts and all the tickets and I get a little gift bag and I go down and the first lady sold out of tickets. And then this lady goes, well, I have one ticket. And so I bought, it was just one ticket too. Cause you get like some people had sheets. So I just bought the one ticket and I'm sitting up there and I still remember because Canada was just kicking the tar out of Czech Republic. It was something like six or seven, one. And they announce it. And I'm kind of scrambling with all my tickets. And I look, and I, I did the biggest double take because it just, you know, and just, if you've ever had a 649 ticket or something, you see a couple numbers, you get excited, but it just, it resonated. Like it just went, oh, <laughs> and I kind of put it down. I was like, I put my test down, <laughs> turned it upside down, rolled my test over again, looked again. I was like, Called the police officer over and said, just can you, I'm really, can you just take, and he's like, oh yeah. <laughs> and I'm like, okay. Um, so I, I won $43,000. He goes, no, 87,000. That's the total amount. So now I'm, now I'm rattled, <laughs> completely rattled. I'm like sweating like the pilot on an airplane. We have this rule that you're not allowed to leave the game early, but they're telling me I have to go down like Dean Lombardi has a rule. You can't leave to the final buzzer. And I'm get now I'm getting up with my wine and my tickets. And I remember going by Brad traveling. He was with Arizona at the time. And he's like, Whoa, whoa, <laughs> wait till Dean Lombardi finds out that Mike feud is leaving a game early. And I'm like, I think I won. <laughs> <laughs> and they're like, of course. And I go down and I go into the little booth there and they've got the cameras and stuff. And they, I hand them the ticket and I'm like, and of course, my mind is like thinking, I'd just gone through divorce. And I'm like, does my ex-wife get any of this? <laughs> like, it was so bad. I was asking all the wrong questions. I'm like, is this tax-free? <laughs> and it was like, I'm literally should be related. And I'm literally trying to call a lawyer and find out. And they give you like one of these checks that's like Bob Barker, right? So it's not like you put it in your frigging pocket. It's like one of these billboard things. And I'm like, okay, this is great. I got to get out of here. And uh, they're like, no, no, we need your name. And I'm like, I can't give you my name. I said, I'm here work. So I was going to give him a fake name. And they go, no, no, you need to see your ID. So I give him my, and I actually put Mississauga. I go, Mike Feuda from Mississauga. So sure enough, I'm walking out. I almost forget the wine, forget the tickets. I actually took the wine and gave it to somebody because I was just, I was giving away everything. I was in such a good mood. And I, I, start to come out and I hear Gordon Miller. Like I'm now watching. He's like, Mike Feuda. <laughs> it's such a boring game that it became a talking point. I can't believe this. Mike Feuda has just won $87,000 here while scouting for the Los Angeles Kings. And I'm like, so now here, of course, you know, you got my phone is just like, <laughs> it's up to like 400 messages. And now you got people calling you from school. I don't know if they can borrow money. Ron had to me and was like, uh, He's like, you know, it's totally straight laced. He's like, uh, you know, you were working for the Kings and that's really the Kings money. And uh, so I, I had people screwing with me, but it was unbelievable. And anyways, and I, and yes, my ex-wife was calling and uh, 
I got, I remember getting in the cab and this guy is driving me back to my, to my hotel. And I've got here, I'm dopey. I've got this, <laughs> this Bob Barker check. I and mean, they gave you a real one too, but you've got the big fake one. And uh, by now everybody knows about it. So I have to get out of the rink while all the hockey guys are giving it to me. And this cab driver, they turn on the radio and the, and the radio station's going, yeah, it's a tough game tonight, but get this, a scout for the Los Angeles King won $87,000. So now I've got this, um, let's just say, um, uh, not quite sure he was Canadian driving my taxi, and he just goes into a, a rant about, I'm driving a taxi and some effing guy <laughs> wins $87,000 at the game. And I'm just like, so I wait till I get back to the hotel and I remember reaching in and I gave him like 200 bucks and he's like, what? what? And I go, I'm that guy. <laughs> <laughs> it was awesome. So I took our scout. I think I gave our scouts each a grand or something and then took the guys out for dinner and put the rest of my daughter's education account. And it's one of those stories. Now I have to go through every time somebody announces 50, 50 draw, everybody turns around and is like, rub up against me. Come on. You know? <laughs> and the funny thing, the next night, um, Oh, there's, I can't remember his, He's assistant coach for Calgary NHL. His father, his father won the next night, something like 92,000. So it was, it was, it was becoming an NHL dominate, dominated event, which was not going over well <laughs> with the people that were supposed to win, but it was awesome. Sorry for the long winded answer, but it, it was quite a, it was quite a unique experience. Real quick. If we can, if I can real quick, yeah. we talked about Don Cameron and the traditions we keep up every time we go to Owen sound, we get the French fries in all the rinks you've been in. Have you tasted a better French fry than the Harry Lumley Bayshore Community Center? Yes. Oh, where? The Staples Center. <laughs> okay. Do they come with like truffles on it? I think there's nine different types of French fries at the place that they have them. But Lumley's pretty good. But I got to be honest, I was so, it was such a strange setup for me there that uh, I never got, I never had them. Oh. So good. But it's like literally because we would like we didn't have a management box there, right? So mm-hmm. I'd go, I'd go in, and the guys would go out. I'd take my suit off, go into the gym, and just ride the bike for the first two periods, and then I'd put my suit on and go out and stand by the glass and watch the third period because there was no like at the time there was really no spot. I mean, the ma- management wasn't going to. We, there were just so many places, only so many boxes for revenue, so they weren't going to give up a box for revenue for the management side. So. I had a little treat down, so I, it didn't involve French fries. <laughs> Talking French fries and Futes riding the bike. Yeah, short is like is funny because I had this huge dilemma at the time because Brian Johnson, who's another wonderful gentleman, but at the time he owned the Kelseys and the Montanas, right? And he used to come in every day and kind of go, "Well, the boys were at Shorty's last night, you know." I don't know if we're going to be able to keep the team going unless you get them going to Shorties and Mon- or Kelsey's and Montana's. And I'm like, are you really? I said, we're in the smallest town in the league. If you start telling my guys that they can't go to a different restaurant every now and then, we're going to be in trouble here. So, no, it was a, it was a great, great experience. But, uh, again, I love getting back up there. I always call ahead and they put me up in that little corner. And I usually don't see a shift because all the same people come walking by and we just share the same stories. And it's uh, – it's not my easiest place to get a good watch in, but it's always worth going up and, uh, and seeing friends and family up there. It'll always be my second home. Great city. The Chichimon there, Harrison Park. It's beautiful. <laughs> hey, Fred Wallace. Freddie. Ray McKelvey. 
Yeah, it's uh, it's the way it's supposed to be up there. Futes, it's always fun. I uh, can't wait to see you back around a rink, but appreciate you obviously making time to do this with us. Great stories to share and, and you know, talk about the league we all love so much. It's an incredible league. I mean, just to think about what these kids must be going through this year, not playing and, and hopefully they can get back at it and get it figured out. Cause I always said, it's my, it's my favorite league, what's closest to home. And it's always, it was the breeding grounds for what led to my, to my existence in the national hockey league. So I'm very grateful for it. Hi, I'm Logan Anderson, host of the Say the Damn Score podcast. On my show, I deep dive into the sports broadcasting business by, you guessed it, talking to sportscasters. The show has featured big names like Bob Costas, Kenny Albert, and Vern Lundquist, as well as many up-and-coming broadcasters who you may not know yet, but you will know soon. Whether you're looking for professional development as a sportscaster, different career paths, or if you just want to be entertained by hearing some of the best storytellers in the world tell their own stories, this podcast is for you. You can subscribe to the podcast on all major podcast platforms, or you can visit our website, saythedamnscore.com. Another Sound Off Media Company podcast.